I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening, and welcome to Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, if you haven't visited San Francisco's Castro area lately, the next time you do, you're going to be in for a pleasant surprise. You'll find newly expanded street-lined sidewalks, bronze plaques honoring LGBT heroes, and yes, rainbow crosswalks. Tonight, San Francisco City Supervisor Scott Weiner joins us to talk about this huge renovation project that he led and how the Castro area, known to be the ground zero of the gay rights movement, is evolving. And then we'll hear from two authors of a new book called This is a Book for the Parents of Gay Kids, a question and answer guide to everyday life. Danielle Owens-Reed and Kristen Russo are here with us tonight, and these two women have created a great resource. The best part is they're seeing that a copy is made available to every PFLAG chapter in the nation. All of this is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, November 23rd, 2014. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Judy and Dennis Shepard, parents of Matthew Shepard, are spending Thanksgiving week in Russia, hoping to give hope to LGBT people and the parents of LGBT children. The centerpiece of their five-day trip is a gay film festival in St. Petersburg, at which the documentary film Matt Shepard is a Friend of Mine will be shown and discussed. The Shepherds will also visit Moscow and are hoping to meet with Russian parents who have gay or lesbian children. Judy Shepard said, This is about families loving their kids, no matter who they are. If families would recognize that, everyone else would recognize it. The Shepherds said they've been briefed about current conditions in Russia, where gay activists often have been attacked or harassed in recent years, and where a 2013 law outlawing the dissemination of gay propaganda to minors is widely viewed as a warning signal to the gay rights movement. The Shepherds said they've been cautioned that disruptions could occur at the film festival and that the authorities might be monitoring those in attendance. The side-by-side film festival has been an annual event in St. Petersburg since 2008, when it was held in secrecy after the planned venues were ordered closed. The featured films last year included Milk, the story of pioneering American gay politician Harvey Milk. The festival has been denounced by Vitaly Milanov, a St. Petersburg politician known for his anti-gay statements. In comments carried by a Russian news agency, he called the event socially unnecessary and suggested that its sponsors be sanctioned. Milanov was the sponsor of a local anti-gay law in St. Petersburg that became the model for the national law signed by President Vladimir Putin last year. And here in the U.S., Michael Sam, the first openly gay man to be drafted by the NFL, has been named one of GQ's Men of the Year. The former Cowboys practice squad member will also appear on one of the six covers of the special annual issue. Sam is currently unsigned by an NFL team, but he continues to work toward being picked up again. And L.A. Galaxy soccer star Robbie Rogers celebrated the release of his new autobiography, Coming Out to Play. Rogers officially came out to the world as a gay man in February of 2013. Fearing rejection, he stepped away from his professional soccer career, only to find full acceptance from his teammates. He signed with the Galaxy and is now recognized as the first out gay man to play in a U.S. professional sports team. Rogers continues to enjoy much success in the world of professional soccer and recently signed a multi-year contract with the LA Galaxy. Rogers has embraced his identity and has been active with GLSEN since coming out by speaking to young people as a role model. 
Rogers tells his own story beginning with his childhood growing up in a Southern California conservative Catholic household. His book is called Coming Out to Play, and you can hear more from Robbie Rogers at a special event brought to you by Copperfields Books that will happen at Santa Rosa High School on Wednesday, December 10th at 7 p.m. And I'll be there hosting the conversation with Robbie Rogers on stage, and you're all invited to attend. You can learn more about this event now on our website at outbeatnews.com. And finally, there are just a couple of weeks until the acclaimed San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus Holiday Celebration returns to -to face-to-face. The evening features the traditional favorites, along with new works including a stunning world premiere by Ola Giehu, one of America's most prominent contemporary composers. In the spirit of the season, a portion of the proceeds from the concert will benefit face-to-face. The festive, heartwarming, and simply not-to-be-missed extravaganza will be held at the Wells Fargo Center for the Arts on December 6th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are $25 to $50 and are on sale now at the Wells Fargo Center for the Arts box office. For more information about LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And if you have news or an event you'd like to share with our listeners, tell us about it by going to our own website at OutBeatNews.com. Follow us all week long on Facebook and Twitter for the latest LGBT news and information from here in the North Bay and beyond. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. San Francisco's Castro District emerged as a center for gay life in the late 1960s and became ground zero for the gay rights movement in the decades to follow. It was the place where the rainbow flag was created in 1978 by Gilbert Baker and the place where we marched in protest of the Briggs Initiative, the murder of Harvey Milk, and when the government ignored the AIDS crisis. It was a place for gay people to meet in a safe environment and to be themselves. And today, it is still a vibrant neighborhood with bars, restaurants, and businesses, and now a beautiful new extra-wide tree-lined sidewalk. And here to tell us about this huge renovation project is San Francisco City Supervisor Scott Weiner. First of all, Supervisor, congratulations on your re-election to the board, and welcome to Outbeat News In-Depth. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about the beautiful... Castro Sidewalk Expansion Project. Tell us where this idea came from. Sure. Um, Castro Street is one of the uh, most popular and most iconic commercial corridors uh, in the city, uh, and particularly for not, not just for our neighborhood, but for the LGBT community, Castro Street has pretty profound uh, meaning in terms of not just our history, but uh, the, our current uh, community. Uh, unfortunately, the the street itself, and, and particularly the sidewalks, were really not up to the task. And uh, they were very narrow for a very heavy pedestrian uh, corridor, uh, and, and they just d- didn't match this, this um, street's uh, importance in our community. And so for a number of years, there was a strong desire in the neighborhood to have wider sidewalks. And fortunately, because Castro Street itself was oddly wide, basically one and a half lanes in each direction, um, we were able to uh, widen the sidewalks uh, without um, eliminating parking. Uh, So it ended up working out quite nicely, and while we were at it, we decided to do a bunch of other things to upgrade the corridor. Yeah, so it is a lot more than just expanding the sidewalks. Talk about some of the other features that visitors will see. Sure, it's uh, an it's an overall streetscape improvement, and also some uh, uh, additions uh, in terms of the history of the neighborhood. 
So we expanded the width of the sidewalks from, uh, they were 12 feet, and now, depending on where you are on the sidewalk, they're anywhere from 18 to 22 feet, so in a lot of places, almost double the width. Um, we uh, replaced all of the trees and increased the number of trees on the street. The, there ha weren't enough trees, and a lot of the trees were not doing well, and so we replaced them with some uh, amazing acacia trees and palm trees. We replaced all of the street lighting um, with uh, new lighting, including pedestrian-grade lighting, so lower-level lighting uh, that lights the sidewalk uh, better. Um, we uh, also um, uh, placed a rainbow crosswalks at all four, um, uh, all four sides of uh, Castro and 18th, which is right at the heart of the corridor. Um, and then we are also uh, upgrading Jane Warner Plaza, which is the plaza at 18th, excuse me, at Castro and Market, uh, which was a temporary plaza. We're now turning that into a, a much more permanent and upgraded plaza. Sounds amazing. And you mentioned the historical uh, pieces. I understand that there are a whole series of plaques that have been yeah. put onto the sidewalk. What's the best way for people to sort of discover those? Sure. There, there are two sets of plaques, and um, one of them is actually just the first phase of a much bigger project. Um, the Rainbow uh, Honor Walk uh, was an idea that some people in the neighborhood had uh, about five or six years ago to try to uh, create our equivalent of the Hollywood Walk of Fame and to identify key figures in the history of the LGBT community and to have plaques in the sidewalk with their, uh, or depicting them, and then with a little blurb about who they were and what they did. And so um, ultimately, uh, the, the plan is for that to be all over the Castro and up Market Street for a number of blocks. So it'll be a very extensive project. Um, because of this sidewalk project, it was a great opportunity um, while we were at it for the Rainbow Honor Walk to have its first phase implemented. And so uh, there were um, uh, a bunch of plaques installed uh, about uh, a number of uh, important LGBT figures in history, like Richard Stein and Tennessee Williams and Sylvester uh, and others. Uh, and uh, you can walk up and down the street um, along uh, Castro Street and along 19th Street and, and read them, and they're really lovely. There's a separate project that we did uh, about the history of the Castro in particular, and there are a series of plaques in the sidewalk as well on Castro Street about different phases of the history of our neighborhood going back uh, to um, uh, before the arrival of the, the, Spani the Spanish. Wow. This is a pretty good-sized project uh, with a lot of different parts to it. Where did the money come from? In 2011, uh, the voters passed a significant infrastructure bond uh, primarily dedicated to capital work on our streets. We had, like a lot of cities, we had let our streets go and, uh, and there was a lot of capital work to be done. Uh, but a smaller portion of that bond was dedicated to uh, pedestrian safety capital improvements, doing major capital work on pedestrian corridors to improve safety and walkability. And so uh, I had campaigned hard for that bond. It was a very important bond. The voters passed it. Um, and uh, we were able to tap into uh, uh, those funds for uh, $4 million uh, to uh, do this project. Uh, in addition, on top of that, <clears throat> we have uh, electric, uh, muni electric overhead wires for muni buses that go through Castro Street. 
Um, and as part of the project, we completely replaced those very large uh, poles, which also have lighting on them, uh, and that they're in the process of being replaced right now. And we were able to tap into some federal uh, um, overhead wire money uh, to do that portion of the project. Uh, the Rainbow Honor Walk was funded by private funds. That's a nonprofit. Uh, and then the uh, history plaques were funded by our uh, community benefit district in the Castro, as were the Rainbow Crosswalks. Those were not paid for with uh, city dollars. Sounds like a real collaborative. Yes, it was. This has been an amazing collaboration between the city, um, our local neighborhood groups, um, nonprofits, and also um, our merchants. And I really want to give a shout out <clears throat> to the Castro merchants uh, we went to them early in the process they were the first group we met with when we were talking about this because we knew any project like this as wonderful as it is in the long run is very very disruptive both to residents and merchants but particularly to merchants uh, in the short run so we worked with them uh, they endorsed the project when it went up for approval uh, and we've worked with them throughout and they have been extremely uh, patient uh, in going through this difficult project uh, but it's one that's going to benefit both the residents and the merchants and visitors for many, many years to come. Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, I'm familiar with the project down on Valencia Street, and then I guess there was one on Divisadero, similar, right? Well, um, not on Divisadero. In terms of widening the sidewalks, it was Valencia Street. Valencia Street was another street with a really embarrassingly narrow sidewalks, and so um, using federal stimulus money uh, a number of years ago, the city widened uh, sidewalks for, I think, about five blocks. And um, uh, it was very disruptive uh, at the time. And, uh, but now I have merchants who are on adjoining streets that of, or adjoining blocks of Valencia that didn't get the extension who are asking, when do we get our sidewalk extension? So these things work out very well. And the Castro sidewalks are wider than the Valencia sidewalks now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be tremendous. Well, I think the merchants, I think you're right, the merchants are going to benefit tremendously. I mean, that whole Valencia area has just come alive with new businesses and restaurants. It's, it's really a cool place to be. Yeah, it's terrific. Yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit to your experience. You're following in the footsteps of Harvey Milk as the district supervisor there. And you have to have seen a tremendous amount of change as that neighborhood has evolved. Talk about your experience. Uh, sure. Well, no one will ever follow in Harvey Milk's uh, footsteps. He uh, was a unique pioneer who changed San Francisco forever. Uh, and, uh, but I do have the honor of representing uh, uh, what was uh, Harvey's uh, district, and I take that uh, tr public trust very seriously, and uh, I'm always very aware that this was Harvey's uh, district, and always keep that in mind. Um, you know, th there's uh, change, uh, or, or change is uh, always present, and the Castro has always been in a state of change. Uh, it was a Swedish neighborhood, and an Irish neighborhood, and then uh, LGBT, you know, LGBT people arrived, and uh, it, it um, uh, we went through the AIDS crisis, and uh, it, it just, it, it's just always been an evolving and a changing uh, neighborhood, and now uh, it is no different in terms of the existence uh, of change. Uh, and it, it's important to uh, remember that um, the Castro has never been a 100% gay neighborhood. There, I mean, straight people were here uh, forever, 
Uh, and even, uh, you know, after the complete arrival of the LGBT community in the 60s and the 70s and 80s and 90s, there have always been an enormous number of straight people in the neighborhood. And, uh, and that's no different uh, today. And there's still a huge LGBT community in the Castro. I know that some other um, LGBT uh, neighborhoods around the country have lost a lot of their identity and have don't have a, a large number of gay people left that's not true in the castro i think the castro uh, has the deepest roots uh, of the lgbt community probably of any city uh, or any neighborhood in the world mm-hmm. um, with that said um, there is change going on in the neighborhood and part of that is be- because um, lgbt people are comfortable living in a lot of different parts of the city there are parts of san francisco where LGBT people are moving that 20 years ago, you, I think it would have been very challenging for people to move into those uh, neighborhoods. Uh, so we're seeing a dispersion. But part of it is because of the cost of housing. Housing in San Francisco is just off the charts. Um, it is way, way, way too expensive here, both to rent or to own, uh, due to years and years of bad housing policy that have put us in a position where we now have a growing population. We've grown by 85,000 people in all, since 2003, mm-hmm. and our housing production hasn't kept up. And the Castro is certainly one of the most high-priced neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so it's getting increasingly challenging for people to find affordable housing in this neighborhood, um, for you know young people to come and find housing here. Uh, and, and we're seeing too many evictions as well. Um, and so that, that is definitely uh, a challenge, and uh, it's something we're working on, trying to create more affordable housing. Um, I authored legislation earlier this year to allow people to add in-law units into their homes in the Castro, because in-law units tend to be more affordable mm-hmm. than other kinds of units. Um, but with all that said, um, you know, it's, it's become a more expensive uh, neighborhood, and we're trying uh, to grapple with that. Mm-hmm. Well, and hopefully this project will really preserve that identity that, that uh, you spoke about earlier, uh, so that no matter who moves there, the Castro will be that place where people can go and, and be totally comfortable being themselves. Absolutely, and I think it's important for people to understand that w- with all the uh, change, the Castro is still ground zero in so many different ways. Uh, we just you know, made the neighborhood even better than it was, uh, but we did it in a way that made sure to you know, permanently tie in this neighborhood with it, its own history as a neighborhood, but with the history of the LGBT community. And we have the Rainbow Honor Walk. We have the Rainbow Crosswalks at 18th Street. We have our LGBT History Museum on 18th Street. We have that massive rainbow flag at Castro and Market. And we still have a very, very large and vibrant LGBT community um, not just in the Castro, but in all the neighborhoods surrounding it. And the Castro, even for people who don't live here, and that's the beautiful thing about the Castro, and I think it's always been this way, um, that it's not just about the residents of the Castro. The Castro, um, in terms of who has ownership in our, this neighborhood, it's our entire uh, community. And LGBT people from around the city come to the Castro uh, to go shopping, to go out to the bars, to go out to eat, just to hang out. Uh, to protest, uh, to gather, uh, and really LGBT people from around the country and around the world. Uh, and we're trying to make sure that when people come here to visit, 
that uh, the that you know the the relationship between the neighborhood and the LGBT community is really clear, and we have more to come. Um, we want to do some work to improve Harvey Milk Plaza, uh, to link it to the neighborhood's history and to the community's history as well. And so there's more to come. Fantastic. Talk about safety. You know, there have been some articles in the paper, and, and I know that we only see the really extreme cases. I think the most recent one I read about was the murder of Brian Higgins. And then there have been some events around Pride and Pink Saturday and so forth. And, of course, going back uh, a couple decades, gay bashings were sort of in the news a lot. What's your sense of, of safety in the neighborhood? I know you've done a lot of work with the police department to really try to make it feel safer, right? Yeah, so um, I've been involved in public safety in the Castro. And by the way, I've, I've lived in the Castro um, for 17 years since I moved to San Francisco in 1997, always in the heart of the neighborhood. And I've been doing uh, public safety work in this neighborhood from well before I was in office. I was one of the people who uh, co-founded Castro Community on Patrol in 2006, which is a neighborhood walking patrol. Um, and we founded that in response to a series of, um, of sexual assaults on gay men back in 2006, which fortunately uh, stopped after about a month or two months. Um, the Castro is, um, it, you know, compared in the big scheme of things, compared to uh, other neighborhoods, the Castro has significantly lower crime. And so I think it's important for people not to somehow have the impression that the Castro is uh, a, a dangerous uh, neighborhood. Uh, it's not, and there are other neighborhoods in San Francisco that have dramatically more serious um, and consistent uh, uh, crime issues and violent crime. But with that said, the Castro, it's a neighborhood in a city. It's an urban uh, neighborhood, and there, there is crime, just like there is in any uh, neighborhood in our, in our city. Uh, and uh, there are assaults, as there are in other neighborhoods, and robberies, and, um, and occasionally something more serious, like what happened with Brian Higgins. Um, and so, you know, even one assault or one robbery or one homicide is, is too much. We want it to be zero. We want our neighborhood to be as safe as possible. So it's just important for people to keep in mind that although the Castro uh, is not a particularly dangerous neighborhood, um, it, it is nor, nor is it uh, a bubble. And I think sometimes, um, and, and, and we've all been guilty uh, of this, just assuming that if you're in the Castro, uh, say at one or two in the morning, leaving the bars or, or whenever, or even in the middle of the day, that if you're in the Castro, it's somehow a complete safe zone and and you know we have to always be um, conscious of our own safety and our friends safety and our neighbors uh, safety and so we're working very hard to try to improve that situation um, the situation with Brian Higgins was really tragic and I know that uh, you know there's an ongoing very intense investigation to uh, try to uh, uh, find the person who uh, assaulted him and ultimately who killed him uh, and uh, uh, police are working very, very hard on that. Great. Supervisor Scott Weiner, thank you so much, uh, and I appreciate your leadership in all of this. You've done a great job in the Castro, and we wish you much success in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate you highlighting our amazing neighborhood. And we'll be right back with more right after our music break. Here's Sia with Chandelier.
You're listening to Outbeat News in Depth on KRCB-FM Windsor, Santa Rosa. I'm Greg Moralia. Young people today are sharing their coming out stories, and they're a heck of a lot more positive and less eventful than they were just a decade ago. Like this one. I'm Robbie McRaig from Bremerton, Washington. Being from Washington, the Seattle area, we have a lot of pride in our, in, in our town. Um, I even have a Seattle tattoo. I come from a family of avid Seahawks fans. We're very prideful, we're very close too, and I think that's a really good bond that we have, is watching the Seahawks, watching our sports. On Sundays, we'd be outside running around, playing around, getting messy. My mom's inside watching the game, we come in. And then same thing on Mondays, we'd go and pick up food from the grocery store and come back and watch the game. Then repeat on Thursdays. It was, it was nice. It was comfortable. It was fun. Never understood football, but I knew I liked watching it. There is a lot of fond memories uh, that involve the Hawks. Um, just bonding, bonding memories with my brother, with my dad, with my mom, with my entire family. Um, also with me coming out. I was 17 years old, and I was dating this guy, and I told my mom that he was a classmate of mine. So we were hanging out a lot. It was fine. I don't think she knew. She had no idea, actually, that I was gay at the time. And so this guy and I were dating, and we went and saw a play at the local um, community college. He told me that he wasn't into me and he wanted to start seeing someone else and being that 17-year-old dramatic little boy that I was, I started crying. <laughs> and my friend Heather, I called her with my little razor phone, hey Heather, my heart's broken. And she came and picked me up, cried, cried, cried. And she dropped me off at home. I walk in. My mom's in her uniform, her jersey, her Seahawks jersey, screaming at the TV, go Hawks, no, no, just screaming. And I walk in just crying, and she just stops everything. Literally goes into mama bear mode, he's like, what happened? Oh my gosh, what's going on? Are you okay? Oh my God, hugs me, hugs me, hugs me. And I'm like, mom, I'm gay. And she's like, oh, honey, honey, that's fine, but can we just wait till commercial? I was like, okay. And so I sat down and <laughs> I sat down and we watched the game together. And then commercial break. She's like, so tell me about this thing that you're gay now. I was like, well, yeah, I'm gay. She's like, okay, cool. Why are you crying? And I told her, I was like, this guy, he broke my heart. And she's like, oh, honey. She's like, there's gonna be a lot more of that where it comes from. Hang on, the game's back on. It's just, it was really cool that she was very open to me coming out. That was a story posted on the website, imfromdriftwood.com. Pretty amazing. And it's true, parents are becoming more educated and aware of LGBT issues, largely because new books like, this is a book for parents of gay kids, a question and answer guide to everyday life. And here with us now are the two authors, Danielle Owens-Reed and Kristen Russo. Welcome to Outbeat News In Depth. Oh, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
Well, let's start out by having you both tell us a little bit about yourselves and how it is you came together to write this book. Danielle, let's start with you. Um, well, this is an interesting story. Um, I started a website called Lesbians Who Look Like Justin Bieber uh, a while back, and I was getting some flack from the community and people saying I was stereotyping or I was making lesbians look bad. And Kristen and I had just met, and she was on her way to getting her master's in gender studies, and we both had a lot to say about it. So we started, uh, we started the site Everyone is Gay um, together. And that was, you know, all advice for LGBTQ youth and in talking to those youth. And we also were touring schools and in doing all of that, we started talking to them about their parents and they wanted us to answer questions for their parents. And, you know, we just sort of, we just sort of started working together and kept working together and kept working with our readers. And then we were like, let's write a book. They want us to talk to their parents. Let's write a book for their parents. So that's Mm -hmm. how we, that's how we came together and started writing. Nice, nice. So let's get to the book. Uh, inside, you suggest that parents still inherently really want to support their kids in, in every way. And in today's world, is sexual orientation still a big challenge for them? Oh, my gosh. This is Kristen, and um, I absolutely do think it's a challenge. I think it's a challenge on a lot of different levels, though. Um, you know, it's not, I think all of us have in our brain that. Um, idea of the parent who doesn't accept their child right away, right? And that is still a reality, absolutely. There are tons of parents who, um, and I think, you know, you hit on this really interestingly when you said um, parents inherently want to support their kids. Um, I think even those parents who do not support and do not um, accept their kids are coming often from a place of love where that love turns um, into something entirely different because of lack of understanding or because of their beliefs. Um, etc. And I think that um, there are also a ton of parents who are accepting and loving, but who are just confused or who are uncertain about the path forward. And so um, in writing the book, we try to address uh, that range of experience for parents because, you know, mm-hmm. some parents are simply concerned about how do I handle sleepovers now or, um, you know, how do I handle worrying about discrimination, whereas some parents are struggling with things like religion and um, you know, how to tell family members and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you cover an awful lot of ground in this book, a variety of topics, really the full range. And woven throughout the book are coming out stories and really mini anthologies from young people across the country. Talk about how you use those stories and how you were able to collect them. Well, I think that a lot of the reason why people have connected so much with Kristen and, and myself on Everyone is Gay is because we share our stories. Everything is from a place of our own life experience. You know, we don't have, we didn't go to school for psychology or sociology. We don't technically know anything. (laughs) We just, we just have our stories. And in writing the book, we wanted to include stories of experiences that we didn't have. So we just reached out. We, We reached out to people that we've talked to before, to some of our readers, some of our friends, um, and we started by having people write for us. And when, when that didn't go, like, super well in every facet, we still wanted to include the experiences. So we were, Kristen was interviewing people, and we would transcribe, and we would, you know, we did everything we could to include as many experiences as we could because when it comes down to it, like, someone telling you advice is not going to be nearly as helpful as you seeing someone who has gone through that process and that they've made it out on the other end, you know? 
Right. Well, I think the stories that you include really make everything that you're saying and all of your ideas seem absolutely relevant and true. I mean, they really back up what you say. One of the areas that you address in the book is when to approach or if to approach your kid if you believe that they're gay. And I think traditional thinking is that, well, you shouldn't ask that they'll come out to you when they're ready. But you suggest that there may be circumstances when it would be best for a parent to actually approach their young person and have that conversation with them. Talk about that a little bit. Well, our our main message is actually aligned with uh, the the thing that you said first, which is um, nine times out of ten, you should wait for your child to come out to you. It's a really important experience for them. And, um, you know, we talked to a handful of kids who even thought that they wanted their parents to ask them. And in that moment, um, they panicked and they said no. um, And then had to deal with not only coming out, but with the fact that they had now lied directly to their parent about their sexuality. So, uh, you know, I think nine times out of ten, it is better for the parent to wait and not to ask the kid. I think that, um, you know, Danielle and I try to highlight a lot in the book that this is personal and this is individual for every family. So if you know your kid and you have seen that your kid is dropping hints and they're, sa- you know, they're leaving things out and they're kind of like doing everything they can, but they aren't saying the words, there, there are, you know, those occurrences where you can weigh that and say, I know my kid, I know they're trying to tell me something, and I want to say it to them directly and let them know that I accept them no matter who they are. But that's a very, very rare occurrence. Mm-hmm. I think it's much, much more important to really give your kid the space and just to be a parent who is accepting and open and, you know, use all of the things going on in the world around us right now as ways to engage in conversation to let them know that you believe in equality, that you're accepting, and that you love your children no matter who they are, and then let them take their own path. Yeah, And of course, there's a coming out process for parents, too. Uh, a lot of young people that I talk to, I often remind them that they need to be patient with their parents, because while their parents may have suspected that they were gay, the reality of that, the emotional impact of that, still is very different than than just suspecting it. Talk about the advice you give for parents about coming out as the parent of a gay child. I mean, pretty much exactly what you said. Patience is a huge, huge thing, and I think that people don't realize it's kind of a coming out process for everyone. You know, once uh, your kid has come out to you, then you almost have to come out to, you know, your coworkers and your family members, and, and then they kind of have to come out in their own way. So it's like, it's a process for everyone. Patience is so important, and having that open communication with your kid is also super important, and talking to them, and both of you being able to be honest with whether or not you feel ready to tell everyone or to just tell your close friends or to just to not tell your extended family. I mean, that your kid will want some of those things and you will want some of those things. And, and talking to each other is so important. But, you know, ultimately it's about what makes your kid comfortable and, and give yourself time and give yourself um, the, uh, the ability to, to talk to your kid and, and wait it out if you need to. But you know, you want to make your kid comfortable and you want your kid to feel supported. So I wouldn't wait too long. And then, of course, there are those opposite circumstances where maybe a parent sees some stereotypical behavior in their child. They begin to make some assumptions about their sexual orientation or gender identity. And then in hopes of of defeating that truth or persuading or influencing that truth, they begin to send out some negative messaging. Uh, talk about the damage that can come from doing that. Uh, maybe your, your little boy is playing with stereotypically female toys. 
Uh, what's the damage in saying, you know, I'm not going to let you play with girls' toys? Man, well, um, you know, there's, there's so many facets to that particular conversation. And I think, first of all, letting your child explore and play the way that they want to explore and play is so incredibly important. It's not just from, like, a lovey heart place. It, that's included, but it's also from a place of, you know, as an adult, you can imagine if somebody said to you, like, no, you cannot do these things that you want to do. You still want to do those things and see what those things are like. And so as you are told not to, it's, it's incredibly damaging. And especially if your child is then internalizing the fact that they their want to do that thing is uh, somehow wrong or bad, they're going to themselves start to feel wrong or bad. Because the desire for them to play with whatever they want to play with or um, you know, behave in whatever way they want to behave is not going to go away. It's only going to have that new addition of the parent saying this is wrong or bad layered onto it. And then, you know, another part of it is really starting to think, like, what we mean when we say, well, my son is playing with dolls, so I think he's gay, right? You're really, like, mixing a whole bunch of things together there to come to a conclusion that, uh, you know, does not necessarily need to be accurate. There are tons of children who like to play in all sorts of ways, and that doesn't impact their future sexuality or gender identity in, in either way. And then there are children who you may see that your, your assumption it was correct in the long term, but there's really no way for you to know. And so I think that instead of looking at your child's behavior and trying to assess, well, maybe this means they're going to be gay, um, so I shouldn't let them do that thing, it's super important for you to let them do what they want to do, you know, within mm-hmm. reason. I'm not telling you you should let your child play with sharp objects. But, right, right. Um, but, you know, they, they need to express themselves how they need to express themselves so they can figure out who they are. Um, and as a parent, I think the most important thing is for you to be supportive in that process and to be um, aware, you know, to really pay attention to what they need and, and how they need it and what that means for their future. Yeah, I have to believe that negative messaging like that can just be incredibly damaging. So let's talk about the ownership of the coming out story. Um, Who gets to make the decision about when, let's say, grandparents are told or when other relatives in the more extended family are told or other family friends? Does the young person own that or do parents? Oh, man. It kind of goes back to what I was saying before about being open to talking with your kid about it because I think... And, you know, I think a lot of kids will be like, hey, mom, can you handle this? Can you just tell everyone? Um, and then a lot of kids will be like, why are you telling everyone? I just came out and I'm not ready. So you definitely have to keep that communication open. Um, and I think ultimately the kid owns it. Like mm-hmm. that's that's all there is to it. It's Your kid is the one coming out. Your kid is the one who's going through this process and going on this journey and discovering who they are. And when it comes down to it, it it's really up to them. Okay. All makes sense. Good advice. So what about a situation where a family becomes split? Uh, I have a good friend who had four kids. Uh, One is gay and the other three are somewhere in between. And after their son, the first child came out, uh, it really caused a divide between mom and dad. And in fact, the father ended up leaving the mother because of her support for their son. He just couldn't handle it. What advice do you have for families that are sort of mixed up in trying to to come to some mutual acceptance? Man, that is that is an incredibly hard situation to be in, and we have heard from several parents who are in similar positions, um, you know, to varying degrees. And I think that you have to know your family 
and your partner and the way that things are going to play out for you. I think it's absolutely okay if your kid comes out to you and wants to wait on coming out to a spouse who they know and you know may be less supportive or may have a harder time with it. Um, but really negotiating that space uh, has to be between then you, you and your kid, right? You have to, you can't keep something from your, your spouse or your partner for an extended period of time and have that be a healthy relationship. So that first part of it is really having a conversation with your kid where you make a plan um, when you, you think that they are going to be ready or when you're going to decide to have this conversation with your partner. Um, and then when that conversation happens, of course, the first step is having the same patience that we discussed before and, and trying to have a conversation in many different ways over the course of time and allow that partner, that spouse, some room to learn and to ease into something that may be very jarring and very upsetting to them at first. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, right, if you love your child and support your child and your partner says, I can't support my child, I think nine times out of ten you're going to be in a relationship uh, that you're going to have to put an end to just, you know, for the sole reason of you feeling like you can connect with your partner on on what are very fundamental and very important uh, beliefs. So, um, you know, hearing about your friend, I I think that's probably the worst-case scenario um, where the relationship actually does have to end. I I think and hope that the more common experience is Um, that even if things are rough at first uh, with dialogue and with tools. I mean, like, you know, this is one of the biggest reasons why we wrote this book is that so often it's just a lack of knowledge. You know, it took my mom 10 years to get to the place she's at today um, to get past all of the beliefs that she held so close to her heart and really navigate through that process. If she had had tools to get more knowledge quicker, um, it would not have taken her as long, and I think that it will provide... Um, a bridge for a lot of um, a lot of different combinations of family members to to work through their feelings and work through their questions. Right, right. Well, and just because things are better today for LGBT people, uh, and there's a, a much greater awareness of what sexual orientation is, doesn't mean that there still isn't this huge void out there, particularly for parents. Uh, and so, the book like the one you've written really is very valuable. Uh, it's still very contemporary. Uh, for for today's world. I know one of the feelings of disappointment I hear from parents stems from their own vision of their child's future, uh, particularly around family. Uh, disappointment, for example, that there won't be a fairy tale wedding and a house with a white picket fence. What advice do you offer parents about how to reframe their vision of the future for their child? You know, we do talk about that a lot. That's, I think, one of the things that causes the most fear um, from parents is that they have they've sort of had this vision of their child for however many years. In some cases, it's 13. In some cases, it's 40, you know. So they've had this vision of their child, and then it's all about um, rearranging that vision. And when it comes down to it, what you want the most is for your child to be happy. And in some cases, that happiness will come from, you know, if for me, for my mother, it was the happiness of, of my future was a husband and a kid and, you know, a job as a doctor or a lawyer. Like, she had this very, very specific vision. And when I wanted to major in theater, that was already a a kick in the gut for her. And then Mm -hmm. when I, you know, when I came out to her, she was like, well, well, now what? I mean, now you can't get married. You can't have kids. How are you ever going to be happy? And for me, it was really difficult. Those questions were super difficult. And I didn't understand, you know, why I was 
choosing to be abnormal and unhappy when it would be so easy for me to just live a normal, happy life. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, and it isn't black and white. And I think she was very, very afraid that I would never be able to be happy because I couldn't have these things. Um, and that fear was kind of projected onto me as well. Whereas it's, you know, it's maybe more difficult but much better to talk to your kid about things in a different way, you know, start to try to envision their life their life in a different way um, and recognize that not everyone wants the same thing and not everyone will um, be happy with that thing. I would be miserable if I were, if I were like married to a man and had two kids and worked a nine to five, I would be so unhappy. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of putting your kid's happiness before the vision that you've put in your head and, and trying to recreate that vision. Yeah, and I think, too, just to interject, you know, briefly, I think so much of it is, is the knowledge, right? Like, you have to, if you've never seen what an LGBTQ life can look like, it's not going to be possible for you to find that new imagining. So, luckily, today, it's 2014, you're not going to find your exact kid's future painted out there, but you can certainly see a whole ton of different ways that a future can pan out some that involve marriage, some that involve kids, some that involve incredibly tight-knit groups of friends, some that involve success at a level of, you know, a doctor or a lawyer like Danielle was speaking of, and some that are more creative. I mean, you know, basically you're working from the same palette that you had before, but I think that for the parents seeing that LGBTQ people can have a whole variety of uh, different kinds of lives just allows them to, like, you know, make that picture more more visible and tangible to them. Mm-hmm. Well, another common challenge for parenting in general is how to talk to your kid about sex and how to talk to your child about safe sex. I'm not sure that we do a great job of that. Our schools certainly don't do an adequate job of it. And there's really nothing for LGBT-identified young people in terms of safe sex practices specifically for them. So where should a parent go and what advice do you offer to parents about how to approach their LGBT child when it's time to have that conversation? Um, I think that, you know, I've been talking about this uh, over the last couple of days um, with a couple of people even in more detail than, the, than we go into in the book. And I, I think that writing the book <laughs> made me, for one, uh, ready to be um, a, a better parent than I would have been before writing it because what I realized was that um, as a parent, it's important to have the knowledge, right? And, and the first, the biggest point is that there is no such thing as gay sex, right? Right. Doesn't, there's just sex, and there are, there are many ways that you can engage in sexual activities. And to keep any kid safe, they need to know about the variety of different sexual activities and how to keep themselves safe in all of those cases, you know? Maybe they'll never do four out of the five. Maybe they'll do all, you know what I mean? But it's important for you to know that it's not just for your LGBTQ kid. It's important to be knowledgeable. But then the second piece of it that the book underlines and that has meant a lot to me personally is realizing that if you have a relationship with your kid where you're super comfortable about talking about sex, great. But if you don't, you don't have to force that conversation. You can offer them the resources that they need, right? There are, in our book, we made a point to include a Sex 101 section that actually does have the practical ways to practice safe sex. You can hand them the book if you want and say, turn to this page. You know, I want to have a conversation with you, but it's important that you know all these facts first. 
Um, or there are websites. There's a website called Scarletine, which is incredible. And there are others that are LGBTQ inclusive. So you can say to them, this is how I feel about sex. I know you're at this age. I want you to know that I'm a resource for you and you can come and talk to me. But please check out these things. So there are a lot of ways into that conversation. And certainly you touched on this a little bit in your question, but not ever assuming that the education system is going to provide your kid with the information they need. Some, uh, some schools are wonderful and have uh, inclusive sex ed uh, programs, but unfortunately that is not at all the majority right now. And I know I left school um, having absolutely no idea that I even needed to practice safe sex. Um, if I was having sex with a woman, I, I left thinking that like I only needed to worry about that if I was with a guy. So, um, and I think a lot of schools are still in that position. Who are sending kids out there who really don't know. Yeah. Even still, the schools that do have great sex education. Kristen and I were reading something recently, and I can't remember the percentages, but it was some ridiculously high percentage, like 98% of kids say that they get their information about safe sex from their parents. So, regardless of whether or not you um, you were super down with the education in your city or town or county or whatever, I think you still have to have the conversation or, like Kristen was saying, slip a pamphlet under their pillow. Well, that's certainly one sly and uh, less confrontational way of, of doing it, but uh, important. I mean, the, the key is to get the information to your child in whichever way is going to be most effective and, uh, and easiest for both of you. Uh, let's switch gears to another difficult topic for parents, and that's religion. What do you do, or what do you suggest to parents they do, when they find that their religious faith is now in conflict with having a gay son or daughter? Mm, well, this is Kristen, and I um, walked this very path. Um, my mom was raised in an incredibly uh, religious Roman Catholic family, and when I came out, that was her struggle, right? I mean, she certainly mm-hmm. had questions about, like, would I get married, would I have kids, but her biggest thing was... I have been taught for my entire life that what you are doing is wrong and sinful, and how do I now reconcile that? Because her love for me didn't go away, and so she didn't know what to do. And um, I think that the most critical and important thing to do is to have an open mind to be able to talk with your child about how they feel about their faith, and also to look to resources that exist that are going to examine some of the things that, that you hold as your fundamental beliefs in different lights. Because, you know, religion is something that um, may have particular words attached to it in texts and, and things like that. But faith, and we treat those two words very differently in that chapter, religion and faith. Because faith is really your personal relationship to that existing religion. And that's going to change. And I think any person who is, is religious and is a, a faithful person um, knows that they don't feel exactly the same way about their faith and about their relationship to um, their religion as they always have. It, it's in flux. And the fact that your child has come out to you, it's, it's not to say, like, you need to accept all of this right away, but it is to say that you should ask questions and get more information. And I know that... For my mom, you know, one of the first things that she did was she went to our parish priest um, and said, what do I do? And one of the most important parts of her entire journey happened there because he said very clearly, don't ever close your door to your child. Don't ever close your door to anyone your child brings home. The fact that your child has told this about, told this about themselves to you uh, means that you have an incredible relationship of love and of trust. And um, I think that that is a real testament to why uh, people practice religion and have faith, is that it's supposed to be a guidepost 
and you're supposed to be able to have a conversation with it. So I think just having that conversation and remaining open with your kid is the absolute best thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. Great. I read recently that you are making a copy of your book available to every PFLAG chapter in the nation. Uh, it would be a great resource for them. Talk about that. Oh, man, that is such an exciting thing that happened. We um, And could not have happened without the support of our publisher, um, Danielle and I got an email from um, the president of the Columbia, South Carolina P5 chapter, and she said, I bought the book for myself, and I was wondering if you could donate a copy to the chapter of uh, the P5 that I'm you know, the president of. And we talked about it, Danielle and I, and just thought, oh, this is a good idea, but I wonder if we could do this for everyone. And um, so we got on the phone with our publisher and, and sort of explained the, the idea that we had, which was if we can you know, get enough pre-sales to match the amount of PFLAG chapters there are, will they match that with a donation? And they said yes. Um, immediately, they like barely even took a second and were like, absolutely, that sounds incredible. And um, we were able to um, sell enough books before the book went, um, you know, for public sale on the ninth to donate to all 385 chapters of PFLAG across the country, which is so exciting. We're so happy because it's, you know, I mean, it's a resource now for all of those parents who go to all of those meetings. That book will be there for them if they need it. Well, it's a great gift indeed. Tell our listeners where they can go to get a copy of your book. Oh, man. They can go all over the internet. Um, we It's pretty much anywhere that uh, books are sold. You know, we're on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and we've got Kindle and Nook and Google player what is that thing called (laughs) google playbooks i don't know what it's called uh but you know it's pretty much anywhere that you indie bound is a great place um if you're looking for local booksellers which is which is cool and we totally support that um we love that most of our book tours and little independent bookstores um but yeah anywhere on the internet (laughs) we've now gotten to the place where you can type in this is a boo on amazon and it comes up first Oh, excellent. Very, very good. Well, we'll have a link on our own website at OutbeatNews.com. The book is called This is a Book for Parents of Gay Kids, A Question and Answer Guide to Everyday Life. Danielle Owens and Kristen Russo, thank you so much for spending time with us, and congratulations to you both on a wonderful book and for this incredible project. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. And that brings us to the end of our hour. My thanks to our guest tonight, Supervisor Scott Weiner and authors Danielle Owens-Reed and Kristen Russo. Don't forget to download the new KRCB app. You can listen to KRCB on your mobile device from anywhere in the world with internet access. The app is free and available now at the Apple and Android online app stores. I'll be back next week with Gary Carnavelli for an Outbeat Extra with special guest Kevin Jones, who will be on to talk about the Sonoma County LGBT Task Force. That's next Sunday night at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a peaceful Thanksgiving holiday and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutbeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond.